All right. And if the rest of you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to wrap up this chapter here this morning, Lord willing. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been out of the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. We had, uh, thankfully, Charles came and he shared a word with us out of Ephesians. And brother, I appreciate your faithfulness to the text and for leading us through the text. And um, it was just a great time of fellowship and, and Bible teaching last week. And the week before that, we had a baptism service. If you missed that, then I'm sorry, because it was an awesome, awesome time. Uh, little Owen was baptized here with us, and we, we even had a, a spontaneous baptism. Ryan was baptized as well. So if, if you left and you missed that, um, just so you know, uh, Ryan decided to give his life to the Lord seriously and was baptized, and it was just, it was awesome. It made my day, made my week. I'm still on a high from that, so... Uh, thank you for answering God's call. And so now we're going to be back into uh, 1 Corinthians, and just by way of quick review, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is really the chapter in the Bible, uh, in Paul's letters, that covers sexual ethics, covers marriage, divorce, and, and we looked at all those things in the first half of the book. And we also followed Paul, as he often does, on his rabbit trail where he encouraged a general contentment in every area. So he went from talking about being content in your marriage and in your relationship to just being content in everyday life, where God has called you, where God is using you to be content where you are. And now Paul, to finish this chapter, is going to bring this discussion full circle. And he's going to tie up some loose ends that he has not addressed yet. For instance, he's going to talk about what, what about those who are engaged or betrothed? Or what about those who are widows? Or what about uh, fathers of young women? And so he's going to discuss all those things. He's going to wrap up this topic before he moves on to the next. So if your Bibles are open, we're going to say a word of prayer. We're going to dive right in and let God speak to each and every one of our hearts and minds. Let's pray. Father, how good you are. You are so good. You are the definition of good. God, you, you place the plumb line on how to measure what is good and right and just and true. And so, Father, help us as, as we have wandered in this world and we have obtained our own ideas of what's good and right and true. Father, I pray that you would correct those by your word. That your word, which is a, a ruler of our of our faith and practice, God, would guide us in the truth, in your truth. Father, I, I do pray as we see things getting more difficult and troublesome in this world, as new challenges are facing us, which we have never faced in our lifetime before here on earth. God, as, as we face these challenges, Lord, may you help us to keep our priorities straight. May you help us to remember that we are holy. We are set apart. We are not of this world. We belong to you. Help us to remember the things that really matter. Help us to, to put heaven as a top priority. Help us to put your work as the top priority. Help us to make you, worshiping you, honoring your name, a top priority, whether it's in our relationships, our jobs, our conduct of speech, everything. Father, help us Teach us now in this hour to put you first, 
in all things. And so it's with this prayer that we dedicate this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've heard a lot of people say to me over the years that I don't think I want to get married and I don't think I want to bring kids into this world because this world has just, just gone to hell in a handbasket. You've probably heard that statement before. That everything is just, just so evil around us. I don't want to bring a, a child into this evil world. And that question has plagued a lot of people. A lot of people have wondered, you know, well, it, it, should I even get married? Should I have children with the way things are going? And these are the same questions that Paul was faced with from the believers at Corinth. Because as you remember in chapter 7, he was, he was encouraging people to really be mindful of marriage, of their sexual ethics, to really be dedicated to purity in the Lord and to his word. And he also mentioned the fact that, you know, if, if you're unmarried as, as I am, it's, it's good to stay unmarried. But he hasn't answered yet the question of, well, what if you're kind of caught in between? What if you're engaged to be married? Or, or what if you're a widow? And what if you're older in years? And, and what if you meet someone that could potentially be a spouse? What, based off of the times, is it a good idea to get married? Or should I stay single? And so Paul's going to address these questions, and maybe you this morning have similar questions. Maybe you find yourself in a predicament. Maybe your, your dream when you were young of this idea of meeting somebody when you're in your early 20s, and they end up being your best friend, and then you, you marry, and then uh, you, know, you go through just the normal marriage routine. You have children, you build your family, you get your dream job, you build your dream home, and you live happily ever after, maybe that didn't happen for you. Maybe different circumstances and variables in your life just completely shook that up and changed that totally, and you were not expecting it. Maybe you've been disappointed by the way things have gone, but nevertheless, here you are. Maybe you're a widow, maybe you're, you're divorced, Maybe you've been lonely and you've been looking for love and you have not found it yet. Well, my prayer this morning is that as God speaks to us through his word, that you will find assurance, you will find comfort, and you will find confidence in what you're doing and who you're with and where you are. So, starting in verse 25, Paul continues on in his word. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So Paul begins by, again, making the point that, that God doesn't have specific instructions for the betrothed in this certain situation. But Paul does continue to speak and to write 
providing his pragmatic pastoral counsel to these people at Corinth. And so he begins by addressing the betrothed. Now, betrothed, that Greek word is parthenos, and that's a word that's normally used to describe an unmarried virgin or someone who is available for marriage. And it's the same word used in Matthew 1.23 to describe the one who gives birth to Emmanuel, Mary, who was found to be with child. When, it's, when she is referenced, she is, was referenced initially as Parthenos, or in Isaiah where the prophecy about the one who would give birth to Emmanuel, she was considered to be Parthenos or a virgin. It's also the word used to describe the virgins in Jesus' parable of the ten virgins. And according to Acts 21.9, we talked a couple weeks ago about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip was an evangelist. The Bible says that he had four daughters at home, and all of them were virgins. So Philip, as he's out ministering and evangelizing to the Lord, going to this place to speak to this Ethiopian, he had women back home that were on his mind. And that's a, a little tidbit that will be important later on. But then he says of, about the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. Now sometimes, as we've mentioned before, the Bible is silent about specific topics. Have, have you ever had a topic in mind, maybe something you're going through in, in life and you've just searched the scriptures and you're looking for that definitive answer that just says, if you're this, do this. If this happens, do this. And how many of you have kind of hoped for that? Just, Lord, just lay it out plainly. If, if this is my situation, then, then what am I to do? Well, the Bible does categorically and in many, many areas specifically address certain things. But sometimes the Bible is silent on a specific topic or situation you might be going through. So then what is the process? Do we just invent a solution on our own? Do we seek worldly counsel? Well, the Bible calls us, for this reason, to be involved in fellowship with one another. Not just for the sake of sharpening each other through the Word of God, through prayer, through good works, but also so that we could provide real, human, practical, pragmatic counsel for one another. And the beautiful thing about our church that I really love is we have all sorts of different ages here. From the really young to the middle age, we have a lot of young families with lots of kids. But then we also have seniors as well, who have maybe recently became grandparents, have been grandparents for a long time. And, and so you have this network of wisdom, and you have this network of encouragement and inspiration, where the older can train the younger. I, uh, there was, I, I think, your guys' new, new baby was being passed around like it was, uh, you know, a bag of nachos. Just <laughs> everybody wanted to hold baby Isaac. And just, I mean, I think everybody in this row was holding Isaac. I think some ladies back there. It, it, it's just, that's church in my mind. That's a, that's a picture of church is you have Kaylee serving us, leading us in song on the guitar. You have ladies here who are unrelated by blood holding her child while she does that. 
um, I remember talking to Jared, you know, one of the things that, that um, he was just really choked up about with this church is, and I hope you don't mind me sharing this, I'm too late, <laughs> it's already happening, and one of the things that he shared with me that he really appreciated when he first came here is that, that kids are sitting with other kids and with other parents, and week to week it's different, some will sit over there with these parents, other over there, and he shared with me how when he grew up, that's what church was like. He remembers, he remembers that. And that had been lost along the way. But we do have that where kids just feel free and, and comfortable. And, and where we have people who are stepping up to, to help out and to train and to teach. And so God has given us the church not just to help each other out through life, but to give each other practical wisdom and advice, especially in the areas where the Bible is silent. Because I know whenever I get together with Chris, if we're talking about the Bible, we're looking for that definitive answer. But if I'm talking to Chris and asking, asking him for advice about raising my daughters, well, sometimes the Bible is silent about specific things, especially in our, our culture. And I value such wisdom. And Chris is just one example, but there's many of you, men and women, who have come alongside me and helped me out in areas in life where the Bible might be silent. So I think when Paul says things like, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy, I think what he's saying there is that he, he's playing that out in real time with the Corinthians. And I think that's all part of God's design and intention, that he wants the church to need each other to help each other. And so in this way, he's going, to offer, he's going to offer his pragmatic pastoral counsel, um, and he's going to play this out as well through the text. And so he says, I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And if you remember through this chapter alone, Paul uses this kind of language three other times. The first time we see is in 1 Corinthians 7, 6, Concerning instructions about conjugal rights within marriage, he says, now is a concession, not a command, I say this. In other words, this is my practical pastoral counsel for you, is that don't deprive each other of sex within marriage. Because after all, I mean, they signed up to marry you. You're the one, you're the only one that they can experience that with, so don't deprive them. It goes better for you in your marriage if you don't deprive each other. That's good practical counsel. But you're not going to find that specifically uh, as a dogma in the Scripture. In other words, if you're having a bad day, if you're really tired and you just say, honey, not tonight, and they disagree, you're not in sin, but you're not doing your spouse any favors. So in that way, it's good pastoral advice. He also says in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 12, Concerning instructions about divorce, separation, remarriage, Paul uses distinguishing phrases where he says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. And so here he distinguishes between whether he's given the advice or whether this is God's word and should be um, just like the Ten Commandments, so to speak very weighty and absolute, where pastoral counsel 
Maybe you might want to go get a second opinion. <laughs> now, concerning Paul's rule of contentment, Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, this is my rule in all the churches. So again, he's personalizing, this is my pastoral rule. And we're going to see this in other places in the, the books of um, the Corinthian letters. So, chapter 7 reveals to us that God uses trustworthy members of the church to give such practical counsel. And that's important as we move forward because everything that Paul is going to say here is his practical counsel to the people at Corinth during around the, the first century A.D. This does not mean that we should just ignore it, write it off, not try to learn for it, from it. After all, God did put this in his very breathed word. And we know that all scripture is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training, and righteousness. So th these things should be considered. But it's important also to remember that this is practical, uh, practical pastoral counsel. Okay, so Paul, first, he considers the current circumstances. Now, part of his wise counsel is to consider what is happening in the world. What is happening in the world of the Corinthian church? What are the challenges, the unique challenges, that they are facing which informs his counsel? Because I can tell you that not everybody who comes into my office on Friday seeking pastoral counsel is going to get the exact same uh, just packaged and repackaged advice. I'm not going to regurgitate the exact same thing. I don't pull out my playbook. Okay, now what happens if that happens? But rather, we, we sit, we talk, and if your situation is not clearly outlined in Scripture, using wisdom that I have received through life, using wisdom from the Holy Spirit, then I give you practical counsel based off of those things. And so in the same way, and well, and also considering what's, what's happening in the world, what's, what's going on in our community, what's going on in the world, all those different factors will result sometimes in different counseling. And so Paul, he points out the fact that there's a, a present distress. He wrote this letter to the church in 54 AD, and during this time, political tensions were mounting against the growing Jesus movement, not just in Jerusalem, but also in the Greco-Roman Empire. And the way of Christians was starting to rub the power, powerful people the wrong way. Because the powerful people, the rich and powerful people at the time, they were profiting off of idolatry, which was rich within the Greco-Roman world. In fact, uh, we, we see the, the silversmith in the book of Acts uh, he gets really angry because, because Paul and Christians are preaching the gospel in the city, which is affecting his, his statue-making business. And so he gets really mad, and he, he goes to the other silversmiths, and he said, these Christians are ruining our bottom line. We're going to lose our business of making idols because of these Christians. And so what did they do? They went out and they started a riot, and then they, they almost like tore the whole whole city down, but through God's hand, um, that was diffused, thankfully. But this kind of tension was rising up in different places where people are just getting mad at the fact that Christians were no longer 
participating in idolatry. They were no longer going to these temples of worship and participating in what that society thought was the end-all, be-all. They were also encouraging and promoting morality, that people um, preserve themselves sexually for one person. And so all these things were running counter to the Greek culture. And so they were ruffling some feathers on a local level, but also the governors and the leaders were starting to get really irritated by the Christians. And if you're a student of history, when you look at Nero, uh, who started to persecute the church in 67 AD, so here this letter was written in 54 AD, almost 10 years later is when the persecutions of Nero began. And Nero the emperor, what he would do is hunt and find Christians and Christian communities, and he would take them and he would throw them into the Colosseum for sport to be torn apart by lions and wild beasts. And there's uh, many accounts of that. So I think the present distress that Paul is talking about, of course, is this increasing tension, this increasing persecution and oppression that Paul was seeing happen. I mean, Paul himself had experienced this. He had been thrown out of the city. He had been stoned outside of the city. He had been imprisoned multiple times. He knew firsthand the distress. And as far as we know, as far as the scripture says, out of Paul's own mouth, that he was not a married man. And so here's Paul, an unmarried man at the time, um, doing the work of the Lord and experiencing all this persecution. So keep all this in mind as he's talking to the people of Corinth. Some of the people married, some of the people unmarried, some of the people engaged to be married, some widows, a whole s- sorts of different people, but the present distress was the same. And so he has all these different variables to work through. So his conclusion here when considering this, when widespread persecution of the church is either here or imminent, then it's not wise to make drastic changes to your life. That's really what he's trying to say. Is are you unmarried? Then stay unmarried because of the present distresses. Don't make a radical change to your life. Are you married? Stay married. Don't seek divorce. Don't shake that up. Don't change that. Preserve your household because of the present distress. But then, because he adds the fact that those who marry will have worldly troubles, and especially when there's trouble in the world. And he would want to spare people that. So as, as, as a pastor's heart, he's trying to encourage his people, be content where you are. If you radically change your life right now, it's going to add more trouble. And I would want to spare you that. And really, isn't that the heart of a pastor is, I, I want your life to, to, to be maximized in Christ. I, I want to try and help you avoid mistakes that I have made or that I have seen other people make. I would hope to spare you that. Some people, unfortunately, need to experience those things for themselves. And so they go out, and I've seen, it's kind of cool because I was a youth pastor for 10 years, and now I've been a lead pastor for almost 10 years. And I've had old youth students who've gone out into the world, who left. I, I, I tried to week after week just tell them about, you know, sexual purity, about being devoted to the Lord, about 
about not getting addicted to drugs and alcohol, and, and you just you pour your life into that, and you preach week after week after week, sometimes just through sweat and tears and sleepless nights. You're praying for them, but then they still go out. They still go out. They do all those things that you warn them not to do. But the cool thing is, is by planting those seeds, 10, 15 years later, they come walking back through the door. They come into my office. They say, the word of God is right. You were right. And I found out for myself. And then they rededicate their life to the Lord. And so the pastor's heart is we don't want people to have to find out for themselves. If they, It's better if you don't. It's better if you heed the instructions of Scripture and heed the wisdom of people who know, trusted people. But he doesn't want to rule out marriage entirely. What if, what if the present distress is great? Now consider our time here right now. The present distress is unlike anything we've ever experienced, right? I mean, for some of you, it, it's, you feel like it's even improved your life. You've been, got to spend more time with your family, things like that. But when you look at just all of the factors in play, the socioeconomic factors, the political factors, just all these different stressors. I can't help but look at, into what's going on in Canada. And I'm just watching the other day, seeing um, mounted police trampling over old ladies. Why? Because they won't wear a mask. Because they refuse to inject a, a foreign substance in their body. Uh, just things like this we have never seen before. Tyranny on a global scale that we have never seen in, in our lifetime. Now, it's, there's nothing new under the sun. Things like this have happened throughout the generations. But for us, this is new. It seems like a, a greater distress than we've ever had to deal with. And so, what do we do? Especially when we see over the horizon, it could get worse. Probably will get worse. My prediction is, once COVID-19 has kind of passed us by, we, we know that the climate change or the climate crisis, which they've been talking about for a long time, I anticipate that they will weaponize that in the same way they weaponize COVID-19, and that they will bring new restrictions, new mandates, social credit scores, and all those kind of things. And you know who's going to score really low on the social credit scores? Christians. Christians. And look what's happening in China. They've implemented a social credit score system. And over the last five, ten years, churches being burned down. Uh, they're aggressively seeking out these underground churches where Christians are meeting. They're implementing new restrictions. They're physically changing the Bible in China. And, and this is why I would say, if you don't have a paper version of the Bible in your home somewhere, you need to right now. Don't rely only on digital versions of the Bible because China proved that they can hijack the digital version, the digital app of the Bible, and they can change it to a version that they like. And they can prohibit you from access to the true word of God as we have it. And so all that to say whether the present distress is here or whether you see it coming over the horizon, 
what should we do? Should we marry? Should we not marry? Should we stay engaged? Should we break off the engagement? What should we do? Well, Paul recognizes the fact that God has given us the gift of romance, the gift of, of love and passion for, for somebody. And sometimes in life, there's a, a passion that just hijacks all of your senses, uh, all of your ability to, to reason, your ability to, to be concerned about your own survival, where you just throw caution into the wind because you love that person. You know, that, that old school romantic ideal, that Shakespearean ideal, Romeo and Juliet, the Montagues and the Capulets, the, the great tension that existed between those two families, but yet two star-crossed lovers found each other in the midst of all this turmoil. And they did not care about the turmoil. They just, they went for it. I mean, obviously, if you know the story of Romeo and Juliet, it ended up in tragedy. But for those moments, those moments, they truly experienced one of the deepest pleasures in life, to really just enjoy the fellowship and company with a person that you truly love. So Paul says, if that happens to you, if, you, if you're starstruck by a person and just suddenly the entire world just falls away and that person is all that matters, then he says, go for it. You're not sinning. You're, you're probably going to face a lot of troubles and you just need to realize the cost. That there will be more trouble if you do get married, but you know what? If that passion is burning, go for it. And I say, I, I'm an old, I'm, I'm a romantic at heart, and I say go for it. Go for it. Be Romeo and Juliet. Marry one another. Verse 29 and he continues on, this is what I mean, brothers, that the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, first he points out the fact that the appointed time has grown very short. Now, from the time of Christ's ministry, he was ministering to his disciples that I'm going to return soon. That he, he put this idea of an imminent return into their minds and into their hearts. Now, we can get into end time study. We can get into eschatology. We can debate the word imminence all day long, but there's no debating the fact that Christ has put into our heart the idea that he could come at any time, that he is coming soon, that even as we sit here right now, even if, if we don't think certain um, 
things have happened in the right order that we ought to be living as if he could come right now. That, that the master is away from the house and we are working and we are tending to his work and that he could come at any moment. And, and we don't want to be caught unaware, but rather we want to be caught right thing, working for him, longing for him. So this is Paul's point, is that we're to be living as if, as if he was coming right now. James 5, 7 through 8 reminds us, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And that was written 2,000 years ago. And here we're still patiently waiting in our time for Christ to come and to make everything right. So the mindset of every believer should be looking for the coming of Christ. Matthew 24, 30, 38 through 44 says, As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had, not, had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so it's on this basis that Paul is elaborating on this point. That the present form of this world is passing away. Ever since Christ came and he died on the cross, he declared, Behold, I am making all things new. Christ is at work in the world. And he is doing a work through the church and through you. And God is looking for workers who will do his work. And if we're distracted by all the little things in the world, I mean, even the news cycle, and I, and I struggle to tune out from the news cycle because there's so much going on. And as the man of the house, I feel the obligation to know what the heck is going on in the world. But even that can just be such a distraction to what I'm called to do. I mean, there's times where I'll be sitting and studying the Word of God for the sermon on Sunday, and then suddenly my mind is like, oh, I wonder if there's an update on that. And then I'll, I'll stop studying and I'll, I'll, I'll look through Twitter, or look through the news and see what new is happening. But then I totally break my focus on the Word of God. My mind is elsewhere. The anxieties of what's happening in the world are distracting me from doing what God has called me to do. God has not called me to be a po politician at this point. God has not called me to be a journalist at this point, but yet I'm acting like I am one in my private time. Oh, look at me. I'm a, I'm a journalist. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find the scoop. I'm going to find the, the real reason for this. I'm going to go down all these rabbit trails. God has not called me to do that. If you're called to do that, God bless you. Do it well. Do it unto the Lord. But if God is calling you to do something, then do it with all of your heart and avoid being distracted by all of life's anxieties. 1 John 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the same principle that Christ communicated to his disciples in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And these two points are connected. He uses that strong language simply to say, put God first in your life. Compared to God, all these things are so much less. Now, if you are a husband, if you are a wife, you still have obligation to fulfill your marital duty. And this is why he, he, he says that if you're with your wife, don't leave your wife. Don't leave her. You still have a responsibility. Yes, it's going to be easier or better for you with less anxiety serving the Lord because your, your uh, attention is not going to be divided. But if you're married, stay married because it's still a good thing. Anxiety divides our interest. Now, I've, I've often thought about anxiety in general being a, a bad thing wholesale. Like you're not supposed to have any kind of anxiety at all. To some extent, that's true. However, if we have anxiety, it should be anxiety for the Lord, for his call, for his purposes. We, we should be at night just wrestling with prayer, wanting people to be saved, thinking about our neighbors who don't know the Lord. Maybe they just found out they have cancer and, and they're not saved. They don't know Jesus. If they were to die today, they would die in their sin. There should be some kind of anxiety in the Christian's heart about, Lord, I, I long for them to be saved. It, it should be an unsettling feeling. And so our anxiety for the Lord supersedes our anxiety for everything else. But the married person has anxiety about many things. Marriage adds additional anxieties and concerns. Any married people agree with that? I mean, husbands, if, if you want to go out and do something, if you want to spend some money, if, if uh, the Lord is, is calling you to just grab your go bag and like go to this foreign place, I mean like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, if God says to you at night that you, you need to go to this place and you need to wait until I show you who you need to talk to. Do you need to talk to your wife about that first? Or can you just go? Has your wife given you the liberty just to say, just to take off in the middle of the night, take money, take resources, and just leave? Not many men have that liberty that I know of. Usually, you turn to your wife and you say, God has given me a vision to go and do this thing. Now, on the rare occasion, there will be the wife who will be like, then you need to go. I got, it. I got all this taken care of. If God is speaking to you genuinely, go. What are you waiting for? Get out of here. 
but a vast majority of women, especially in the West, they'll first start asking lots of questions. They might even say, well, can I go with you? Well, who's going to take care of the kid? You know, it, it unravels, and then you just have to start thinking of all these logistics. Well, how are we going to pay for this? Who, who, you know, but if you're a single person and God calls you, it's like, let's go right now. What are we waiting for? Don't have any kids to worry about. Don't have a wife to worry about. Let's go. And that was Paul. And wh- how do you think Paul covered so much ground? He was definitely not a married man. Peter did not cover nearly as much ground because he was a married man. Peter is like most of us. And if you look at Peter's life and his ministry, I mean, he was the one who kind of bumbled and fumbled around. And why? Because he had divided interests. His mind was on his wife and his mother-in-law who was sick in their home. His interest was divided. I often think, well, why did... Why did Peter deny Christ? And sometimes I think that maybe in that moment, he thought of his wife. If, if he had kids, he thought of his kids. And he thought, I can't, I can't leave them. I can't be arrested. I can't be killed. So you see that oftentimes being married will add those extra anxieties. And for the married person... Essentially, they're, they're good anxieties. It's good to be concerned about your wife and your kids or your husband. But Matthew 6, 25, Christ says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Well, you consider the Martha Mary story. Martha was hosting a party, and Christ, the Savior of the world, was showing up. And Martha was busy and anxious, trying to get everything perfect, just so. Mary wasn't helping her at all. Mary was hanging out with Jesus, the Savior of the world. She was sitting at his feet, learning from him, spending time with him, showing him the honor and respect he deserved. Martha, she was anxious about so many things. Oh, what what is Beth down the street going to think if I don't have these plates just so? If If my drapes aren't put up just right? If they find the little wooden doll that my kid plays with in the middle of the room, what is Beth going to think? She was so anxious about so many things. Life has so many anxieties to begin with. Marriage adds more. And so to the engaged, um, Paul, ultimately, he's drawing a fine line here. And we're, we're going to close on this idea here. I want to um, honor your time this morning. But Paul wants to make it clear that he is not forbidding marriage. He is not forbidding marriage. I mean, after all, it was he who wrote to Timothy in 4, 1 through 4, that it's the people who have fallen away, the false teachers of the gospel, it's them who forbids marriage and forbids people to eat certain foods that God allows people to eat with thanksgiving. And so he he definitely knows he's towing that line 
He's not forbidding marriage, but he's encouraging people in the present distress to really think hard about what you're doing. Is it wise to to completely radically change your life? If God has called you to do something, is marriage going to help or is it going to hinder that? Is your passion for that person so great that you can't control yourself? Then you should marry. You should do the right thing. Are you having a child out of wedlock? You should do the right thing, marry that person, take care of that child, be committed. And so Paul is not forbidding marriage, but he's encouraging all of us to think about it. If you're married, stay married. Make it the best marriage you, you possibly can. If you're unmarried, be satisfied in him doing his work. And you know what? If a pretty little gal comes along and just rocks your world and you can't control yourself, marry her, you're not sinning. And if you're engaged to be married, well, we'll take a look at that in more detail next week. So let's pray. And I want you to invite you to join us for soup. Father, we thank you for this time we get to spend together. Lord, your word, you, you have told us that you are coming soon. You have put it in our heart, Lord, that we are to look to the heavens. We are to keep our mind fixed and focused on you. That you are definitely coming. And God, you are closer to coming today than you were yesterday. So help us as we think about our lives, as we prioritize our stress and our anxiety. God, help us to make your will and your call in our life the top priority, the top thing to think about and to worry about. I pray, God, that you would help us in our marriages, help husbands to love their wives as you love the church, help wives to respect husbands as the church respects Christ. Help us to complement each other. Help us to work through all the, the difficult issues and the anxieties. Help us to trust each other as we seek to follow you as a couple, but also in our own life. Help us to trust each other with your calling and support each other. Father, I just pray that you'll bring unity to marriages, to the family of believers here. And we do pray that you would come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are all dismissed.